Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. An integral part of art education in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, painting en plein air, was a core practice for avant-garde artists in Europe. Intrepid artists such as Jean-Baptiste Camille Corot, John Constable, Simon Denis, Jules Coignet, and André Giroux, highly skilled at quickly capturing effects of light and atmosphere, made sometimes arduous journeys to paint their landscapes in person at breathtaking sites ranging from the Baltic coast and Swiss Alps to the streets of Paris and the ruins of Rome. The exhibition, True to Nature, Open Air Painting in Europe, 1780 to 1870, consists of some 100 oil sketches, including several recently discovered works. Drawing on new scholarship, it explores issues such as attribution, chronology, and technique. To celebrate its opening at the National Gallery of Art on February 2, 2020, Mary Morton, curator and head of French paintings at the gallery, led a conversation with experts in the field. Herr Luton of the Fondation Custodia in Paris, Jane Monroe of the Fitzwilliam Museum and Christ College, Cambridge, and private collector Alice Golday. True to Nature is on view through May 3rd, 2020. Welcome to the opening day of True to Nature, Open Air Painting in Europe, 1780 to 1870. Um, and I wanted to start by thanking you for joining us and thanking my fellow team members on this voyage that we've taken into landscape painting. And I did want to thank one person who's not sitting on the dais, whose name is Michelle Bird, who has been an incredible researcher, organizer, diplomat, cheerleader. This project would not have come off without Michelle. So I just wanted to give a round of applause to Michelle Bird, a crucial member of our team. So this exhibition focuses on four collections of late 18th and 19th century open air oil sketches. It is a genre of artistic production that is valued for um, as much for its art historical importance as it is for its freshness and spontaneity of the painter's inspired transcription of na nature on two-dimensional supports, largely small pieces of paper and board, cardboard. The exhibition um, draws on four collections, the National Gallery of Arts collection, which was started really in the mid-1990s, the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge, England, which is a distinguished university art museum that held the first museum exhibition of this material in 1980. Uh, the Fondas Fondation Custodia, which houses the collection of, the of Fritz Lucht, who established it in Paris over 50 years ago. It is a collection, a very fine collection of prints, drawings, and artists' letters, and it is also an art history research center. Um, also, as you will see, an extraordinary collection of oil sketches that were formed only over the last eight to nine years. Um, and a private collector is the fourth source of this uh, exhibition. Alice Golday, who we're uh, so pleased could join us on the dais. She has been gathering landscape sketches for over 30 years. Um, she has a deep knowledge of this material and an unerring eye. She was trained as an art historian at Harvard, and she practices art history as a collector, uh, carefully amassing a coherent body of European landscape sketches of the highest quality, practicing connoisseurship, which involves following the field carefully, 
visiting exhibitions and galleries, learning as much as possible from dealers who come into contact with hundreds of works of art of varying quality and attributional certainty, and putting her taste on the line uh, through purchases. We will hear more from Alice uh, and from Jane Monroe, who is uh, one of the exhibition co-curators from the Fitzwilliam. She's been keeper of drawings, paintings, and prints for over 30 years there, and she teaches art history at Cambridge. Sadly, Herr Leuten, uh, who is the director of the Fondation Custodia, was taken ill a few days ago and has been was forbidden to travel. Um, but he sent us some slides and a text, so I will embody Herr a little bit later in the hour, uh, a virtually impossible task, as we'll talk about. Um, we're each going to take about 10 minutes uh, to talk about these four different collections. We get really excited about this material. Um, and so uh, if, if we tend to go over the 10 minutes, I'm going to, I have a squirt gun, I'm going to start squirting people. But um, bear with us. Uh, we want to try and save some room at the end for questions and discussion. So let me start by sketching the subject of the exhibition. <clears throat> give a little bit of its backstory, which, as you will see, involves the National Gallery really from the beginning. True to Nature addresses an artistic tradition which takes place in, takes root really in Rome and in the magical landscape surrounding that ancient city known as the Roman Campania. Artists, uh, in order to finish their education, had to travel to Rome to study ancient architecture and sculpture and Baroque sculpture and painting. And circa 1780, 1790, certainly after 1800, they also had to go out into the Roman Campania and uh, sketch. Um, this was a practice that was employed as a means of understanding nature and of distilling the experience in the outdoors. The translation of complex visual phenomenon and natural light really could not be learned in a studio or from a manual or from a master. The active looking involved in analyzing the motif and the sharpening of vision and hand-eye coordination could have a positive effect on artists' later more formal practice. The idea was that the confidence and agility developed by repeatedly capturing nature on the spot, activating intuition and invention, translated into bolder, more luminous studio work. As the practice continued over the early decades of the 19th century, it was fueled by a resurgence of nature love and the rise of a romantic sensibility. The attitude inspired by the philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau towards the beneficence of nature, with a capital N, stripped of extraneous ar artifice, validated the practice of landscape painting beyond its role in leading towards more formal subject pictures. The general lack of finish of open air sketches indicated an immediacy of execution and a spontaneous capture of the subject at hand. As Anne Herningwald's catalog essay describes in detail, and we were thrilled to have this um, most eminent paintings conservator, who I think has spent more time on 19th and late 18th century French painting than just about any paintings conservator anywhere. Um, and she describes in her excellent essay in the book the informality of the materials that were used, the paper supports, the limited brush sizes and pigments, and all of this invited experimentation. And also there is the excitement of discovery. 
a freedom from the obedience and rote learning of teaching in the studio. These things were produced neither for exhibition nor sale. They circulated among a small group of artists generally, or more likely they remained in the artist's studio, hidden from public view, serving as precious ed memoir for formal compositions. They have been, uh, they were considered to be of very little art historical and financial value. Uh, and the vast majority of artist sketches, therefore, have been lost. With few exceptions, the late 18th and early 19th century plein air tradition was largely overlooked until its gradual rediscovery beginning in the middle of the 20th century. In 1954, over 30 outdoor oil sketches on paper by the British painter Thomas Jones came to auction in London. They had been in private hands, basically, since the artist's death in 1803. A curator in the Department of Prints and Drawings at the British Museum named John Gear was entranced by their freshness and immediacy. And I'm showing you one here um, that he was actually able to acquire for the British Museum. Um, and then I can't resist showing you one of my favorite Thomas Jones sketches that belongs to the National Gallery, London. But Gear was surprised at their attribution to an artist that had really never captured his attention prior to seeing these wonderful fresh things. Around the same time, he discovered a fairly recent bequest to the Louvre of hundreds of drawings and oil studies by the late 18th century artist Pierre-Henri de Valenciennes. Like the Jones sketches, these objects had been out of public view since the artist's death in 1819. Seeing them himself at the Louvre and comparing them to Valenciennes' finished works, and I'm showing you there the ancient city of Agrigento, which uh, belongs to the Louvre. It was in the Salon of 1787, and it hung just near the galleries where Gear was experiencing these incredible sketches. And he noted the comparative freshness, their informality, their directness of vision, and their emphasis on effects of light and atmosphere but having a, a wonderful resonance of color. Along with his wife, Charlotte, herself an art historian, Gear started to build a study collection of these outdoor oil sketches, working with dealers who were equally prepared to take a gamble on these usually anonymous works. The Gears filled the walls of their London home with their discoveries. They invited friends and colleagues to this densely hung laboratory of connoisseurship, to compare and to discuss and to look again and to teach and to learn. They amassed over 80 small paintings from the late 17th to the early 20th century. One visitor to Gears' laboratory was Philip Conisby, a young art history professor at the University of Leicester. He had dedicated his dissertation at the Courtauld several years earlier to the career of Claude-Joseph Vernet. And I'm showing you a painting by Vernet that the gallery actually just acquired last year. It's not yet on view. Um, it has been cleaned, but we're creating a, uh, a frame for it currently. Vernet was the leading landscape painter in France in the second half of the 18th century. And Conisby was therefore, having worked on him in depth, familiar with the discourse of landscape painting of the period in the academy and among artists, critics, and collectors. Conisby had discovered specific advice from Vernet uh, that he gave to young artists on methods of outdoor painting, and even more importantly, on the necessity of sketching outdoors in an immediate naturalistic way. 
plein air painting was the best way to avoid the dry mannerism of academic training and studio work, Vernet counseled, so as to train the eye and hand in matching pigment to light and atmospheric effects and to create a sense of space and distance. In 1978, <clears throat> Conisby published a very important article that offered documentary evidence of artists engaged in the practice of oil sketching outdoors. And he made a crucial observation. While some of the sketches were clearly used for finished works later, back in the studio, and some served as training exercises in transcribing light, topography, and natural details, there were also sketches that, in his view, essentially had to do with, quote, a tender and loving regard for the world, light raking the only just autumnal leaves and enclosing a wall of a favored secret wood, cattle grazing in the heat of a summer afternoon, a silent stretch of hidden river with its plants and grasses and so on. He goes on, over some three centuries for, say, Claude, Desport, Constable, or Cezanne, the sketching trip in itself must have offered corresponding experiences of solitude, release from the city and men, the respite of enveloping nature. Conisby worked on an exhibition project on the subject for the Fitzwilliam Museum, and uh, the exhibition also went to the Royal Academy. It was on the tradition of open-air oil sketching from the 17th to the 19th centuries. For that exhibition project, he teamed up with John Gere and Lawrence Gowing, as well as Fitzwilliam curator Duncan Robinson. And this exhibition, um, in the process of doing this exhibition, these scholars attempted to sort out these pioneering plenarists. The exhibition, as I said, was held in 1980. Conisby continued to excavate the subject through the 1980s, and he secured a fellowship at the Yale Center for the Study of British Art in 1985 and spent several months reading through the landscape literature. In 1986, he embarked on a curatorial career in the United States, taking a position at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, and then moving two years later to the LA County Museum of Art. Um, for both museums, he acquired plein air sketches. In 1992, he became curator of French paintings here at the National Gallery of Art. And three years later, along with Sarah Fonts and Jeremy Strick, he presented the landmark exhibition In the Light of Italy, Corot and Early Open Air Painting, which traveled from Washington to Brooklyn and on to St. Louis. Uh, it included not only works by Corot, of course, but uh, pictures by Bertin and Michelon, Bido, Granet, Coignet, and uh, Karl Blechen, a German artist, in addition to the miraculous sketches that Coro does in the later part of the 1820s in Rome. And the exhibition uh, showed that, in fact, Coro's miracle was not so miraculous after all, that there was a tr tradition out of which he came and a context. Um, the experience of so many gloriously luminous Freely painted sketches firmly debunked also the triumphalist narrative of Impressionism's seminal modernity in breaking from the studio to paint outside. And I'm just showing you a couple of images from that wonderful 1996 exhibition. Perhaps some of you saw this exhibition. You're not going to recognize too many of these paintings. Um, there is one Coro that you'll see in our exhibition. But over the next 40 years, 
Conisby participated in art historical rediscovery of, of the plein air tradition, and he created an exquisite collection for the National Gallery in Washington, where he was curator from 1993 until his death in 2008. And I'm just showing you some of the pictures that Philip brought in to the gallery. This is this wonderful Coignet view of uh, the mountains in Bozen, um, which was given in 1994 by Mrs. John J. Ida. It's the sort of cover image for the exhibition. This beautiful coignet of the lake at Nemi, which was also given by Mrs. John J. Eide, as well as two pictures by André Giroux, this wonderful sort of sous-bois of a waterfall rushing around rocks behind bows, the light coming through the, the foliage, and then its partner, and we have them hanging around the corner right next to each other, which pictures that very scene, but it uh, actually pictures the painter painting that very scene, guarded by his faithful little pup who's sitting with his back to the painter. The wonderful Giroux of the church at Santa Trinita at the top of the Spanish Steps, which was bought by Philip and the trustees in 1997 using the Chester Dale Fund, which is an acquisition fund uh, specifically for French painting. Philip also found this marvelous study of clouds by Fragonard, by the Rococo master Fragonard. Uh, he bought this in 1997 using Dale money. And then there was a picture, finally we got a sketch by Valenciennes, who's one of the main protagonists. He was the theorist, the foremost theorist of plein air sketching outdoors. And Philip was able to bring this into the gallery. It was a, a picture that was paid for with funds of Gil Ravenel's friends. Gil Ravenel was the highly esteemed designer here at the gallery. And when he passed away in honor of him, his friends bought this picture. Also, this Simon Denis picture of view near Naples, Philip bought in 1998 using Dale funds. One of the great paintings in the gallery, in my opinion, is this fabulous Coro sketch from the late 1820s of the island of San Bartolomeo, which Philip used uh, patron permanence fund monies in 2001 to acquire for the gallery. And then this marvelous panorama by Theodore Russo. This Constable Sky Study, was uh, given in 1998 by Louise Mellon in honor of Paul Mellon and his wife, Bunny. This painting by Eckersberg was given by Vicky and Roger Sant, who were great supporters of Philip's and supporters of French paintings. A collector that Philip worked very closely with called Frank Trapp gave two pictures, um, actually more than that, but in the exhibition you will see these two paintings, one by Fleury out in the Roman Campagna and this marvelous picture of Tower Mina by Sarazan de Belmont. And then in 2005, um, this picture was given by George and Fern Wachter um, in honor of Philip Conisby. So some of these you will see, as I said, around the uh, corner in our exhibition. The three curators of this exhibition, myself and Janie Munro and Herr Leuten, as well as Alice Golday, we were all, we all knew Philip and we admired him greatly and um, were sort of inspired by him, I think, to continue our work in this area. Um, I'd like to pass uh, the microphone, not literally, to Janie Munro, who's going to talk about um, the Fitzwilliam Museum. So I'm going to pass this over to Janie. Janie. Um, now, I, I, I make it about um, 2.20, and I'm really keen not to be squirted by Mary, particularly as she's very, very close to me. So what, what I'm going to present you with is a potted history and just a little bit of background about the Fitzwilliam Museum. So 
welcome to the Fitzwilliam Museum. The museum was founded in 1816 with the bequest of the collection of Richard, seventh Viscount Fitzwilliam. Fitzwilliam was collector. He was an amateur musician and composer. He was one of the greatest connoisseurs of prints in existence in his day. He was also an ardent Francophile, so I'm sure a large part of this exhibition would have pleased him greatly, probably helped by the fact that he had a mistress in Paris um, that always um, helped endear the place to him. And the museum opened its doors to the public in 1848. Um, it is, as Mary said, the art museum of the University of Cambridge, where we look after around about just over um, half a million objects of different sorts. But as well as being a venerable institution in its own right, it's, we are, in terms of this, this story, which today, the story of collecting oil sketches, very much um, the, the old kid on the block. Um, and what's noticeable in the Fitzwilliam is that despite this very grand exterior and this absolutely magnificent, um, recently revealed plaster work of one of our grandest galleries, despite the fact that it is rather grand and can be rather forbidding, it's hung in a way which allows intimacy of looking. And I think that's something which Mary and her team have done so brilliantly in the galleries next door. You can get up close and personal with these objects. So, for example, there's a just one gallery, which is the Dutch gallery, mixture of furniture, there are flowers, there are rugs, there are ceramics of different sorts. And this is a style very much encouraged by the, what, who's still one of the greatest directors of the Fitzwilliam Museum, a man called Sidney Cockrell, at one time a secretary to William Morris and a great friend of the Pre-Raphaelites. And it was Cockrell who also had the sobriquet deathbed cockerel because he would have a tendency to turn up if you were feeling unwell and get you to leave your pictures or objects to the Fitzwilliam <laughs> Museum. <laughs> I'm afraid museums are shameless sometimes. <laughs> um, so, but really, although um, there, there are around about 2,000 paintings in the collection, it's a bit hard to pinpoint the origins of collecting oil sketches because it really... Um, because so much has entered the collection through bequest and gift. Um, the collection, the, the Fitzwilliam has been called a collection of collectors, which is absolutely true. We, we, um, and we're lucky that some of those collectors have been extremely distinguished. Um, that doesn't stop us being one of the most acquisitive museums in the UK. Um, but, you know, if you're going to pinpoint the origins of the oil sketch, some drifted into the, the museum before the intention was to build up a collection of those very things. Now, here's a very good example, which you'll see in the show. It's a landscape, or rather a, a riverscape, by the pre-Raphaelite artist William Holman Hunt. And it's a beautifully sort of moody and atmospheric painting, which is a little bit reminiscent, I think, of, of some of Whistler's Nocturne paintings, which you can see just down, down the road in the Freer. Um, so, and that came to the, that was a present from one of the pre-Raphaelites to the other. It belonged to John Everett Millet at one point. And it was given to us in 1917 by an, another great collector and dealer called Charles Fairfax Murray, who is probably one of his best known claims to fame on this side of the pond is selling his own collection of old master drawings to J. Pierpont Morgan for something which was the equivalent of $4 million at the time. So he was very generous, but also knew when to strike a deal. Um, so he was an a very, very interesting character. So 
Mary mentioned the, the freshness of this sort of painting. One of the most beautiful sketches in the Fitzwilliam is this absolutely ravishing Corro. Look at that sky with the clouds scudding along it. It's the light of Italy, but it's actually Italy in, you know, in inclement weather. So you have these, you'll see in the show, you've got these great luminous skies, but then here's Corro painting, as he writes in the bottom right, in February, and uh, making sure we know that it can get cloudy over the Campania too. Now, in, interestingly, this picture was given in 1966 by a man called Captain William, Stanley William Sykes. And Sykes was one of the less, much lesser known than Courtauld, after whom the gallery in London is named. But he was one of the, the very active collectors of Impressionist painting in Britain in the 1920s. Britain was long, beh way behind America in collecting Impressionist painting, but Sykes was one of them, and I think it's likely that th this sort of freshness in the Coro would have appealed to him. Now, in terms of purchases, the probably the first, the first acquisition, rather than a gift, is this panorama by um, Theodore Rousseau, which has recently been identified as a view near the River Moselle. That's one of the great things about these sketches is that they're fresh in the way they're painted and they stay fresh because we don't know who they're by sometimes, we don't know where they are, um, and when they're on exhibit in different parts of the world or just in the gallery, you, you're constantly making discoveries. So this is new, that this is somewhere near the Moselle. And we bought this from, it's by Theodore Rosso, and we bought it from uh, the Hazlitt Gallery in London, which was one of the galleries at the epicenter of the appreciation of this material. Um, I'm not going to say very much more about it because I, I, I think Alice has, has things to say about it too. Um, it's in a section of the exhibition. We haven't mentioned this, but you'll see in the exhibition that it's divided into sections. So topographic in Italy and then really by natural phenomena and one section which looks at perspective because one very striking thing about these sketches is that you get the, the angle of vision. It's, it's as if they've set themselves, up, set themselves up with this challenge. And so you, 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 know, you look down from rooftops, you look down from heights over a panorama, and it gives you this sort of snapshot effect, this effect of snapshot immediacy. Now, very quickly, um, Mary mentioned John and Charlotte Gear. And they really were among the pioneering collectors of this material in the 1950s. Mary sketched in the, 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 the nature of the collection. It's about, about some, some 80 or so works, the majority of, of them views of Italy by British, French, German, Belgian and Scandinavian artists. But it's very interesting to learn from their experience of, you know, almost 70 years in Charlotte's case, unfortunately, John Gear is no longer with us, but I was, like Philip, one of the uh, privileged few to see, at least still here, privileged few to see their marvellous display in their house in London and to be, to, to be able to ask questions and to be asked questions and to be able to think and look at this material. But, you know, it's very interesting that they have questions about this. Um, John Gear was absolutely against the, what he called the fetishization of attributions. He felt that, um, that actually the, that these are, this material, artists were working more like one another than they were with the finished paintings they went on to produce in the studio, which is an interesting thing to think about. And there's all sorts of reasons why attributions are made. 
they sell better for one thing, but um, but but attributions also change. So it, it again sort of keeps it fresh. And the other th- the the other question when I that Charlotte Gear raised just recently was, she said, well one day I'd really like to know what a sketch is. And this picture with the painting on the left by Camuccini was one of the first things they acquired. And she said that when they, they, the, a selection was presented to her from the artist's descendants, um, she thought that was it. She now didn't have to worry to think about what a sketch was any longer. And in fact, hesitated for over 20 years before buying the granny, which would be on your right, I guess, precisely to you know, to question the, the sketch status of this object. This is when Duncan Robinson was a curator at the Fitzwilliam, and Mary mentioned um, that he was one of the curators with Philip of the exhibition Painting from Nature. We bought this absolutely beautiful Giroux, and it's called A View of Rome, but as you can see very clearly, it's a view of a, of a lovely sort of partly wooded and dusty road leading up to the, the city itself. So it's mood, it's close to nature, it's that, that Giroux is looking for there. Giroux, I think, emerges as one of the great stars of this show, and he was hanging out in Italy with Corot, Daligny, and so on. So it's lovely, and, and they, I think very evocative to think of these artists painting together, particularly the paintings which you'll see in the show of painters painting the landscape. Your question is, OK, who's painting the painter painting the landscape? <laughs> so you get the feeling of hanging out with a gang. And then very quickly... Two almost strands for the show, and there could be another conversation about how we whittled down the selection for this exhibition. But these were also pictures which came from the gallery Hazlitt, Gooden and Fox. There was a merger in 1973 um, and owned by a man called John Tillotson, um, who eventually bequeathed them in 1985. So that works that were acquired in London at this gallery made their way to us, um, you know, at, at one step removed. And then I just want to end with these two views of Vesuvius, which you'll see in the show. There is a section of volcanoes, and both of these were acquired by this generation of curators at the Fitzwilliam Museum. One top left from Le Monnier, a name that doesn't ring any bells for many people unless you happen to frequent the Musée des Beaux-Arts in Rouen a lot, and you will never see anything like this. It's just a complete one-off. And then a, a wonderful painting, a very dusky painting by Johann Christian Klausendahl on the right, also Vesuvius. This is how I started in collecting, was more in the world of old master drawings and much more in the world of the 18th century. It happened that I was living in Paris in the mid-late 70s, working for an art gallery, having had every, every sort of job imaginable in the art world, but not having found any of these jobs that suited me correctly. I was not going to be a scholar. I did not like going into the caves, the bleak and grim underbelly of Harvard's library. I did not like, I wasn't very good as a teacher. I didn't think I would be that great as a curator as my two eminent colleagues are here. But I was interested in art dealing to a certain extent and had begun doing that. And I was happily doing that for a while with a a British company that sold Flemish and Dutch paintings of the 17th century. And I think a lot of our oil sketches hark back very much to this period, so I was quite aware of these. I had never studied the 19th century at all. 
but as it happened, my own private life had been rather turbulent. And at some point during this period in, in Paris, I met someone who was going to become my serious husband. And he was also a fairly serious old master drawings collector. And I thought, oh, good, this is going to be a lot of fun. He said, I am missing one thing in my collection is a large sheet of Hubert Robert, pref pre definitely from the Roman period. And so searching around from a dealer who was a great dealer in Paris called Petit Ori, who some called Petite Horreur. Uh, this was found and he acquired it and then things evolved between us and we were deciding to get married at some point and I thought this is going to be wonderful but I had several very bad surprises coming up. One was that he happened to be a high court judge or magistrate in something that is the equivalent of the US government accountability office and in those days art dealing was done with a lot of cash and the, the sorts of clients that came to buy Flemish and Dutch pictures were generally German. And they absolutely, to this day, they still go around with buckets of cash. And so he said, this is not possible. There is no way that I can have a wife, given that I'm doing the accounting of the state of France. I cannot have someone with this sort of situation going on, even if you are not technically the company, etc." So that was out. Art dealing was not going to be good. Secondly, he said, by the way, that was the last drawing I think I'll ever acquire. And this was a very bad surprise. So, I, so in any event, there were obviously other redeeming features to this situation, and we went forward. Uh, this, this, this drawing, as it happens, is one which I like very much because there are many things about it which announce the period that we will be talking about, we have been talking about, because it's 1760, it's signed Roberti, which he signed in the Italian fashion at that point. And everything to do with Italy had always also been a great passion of mine. That also, the husband announced, we will never live in Italy. <laughs> um, the first thing that, then I thought, how shall I support the possibility of collecting in any way? Because I thought it was something I could do possibly. Um, and I went, we have mentioned here, Hazlitt's. Running the department of Hazlitt's that dealt with these Italian sketches was someone called Wheelock Whitney, who is an American, and whose collection many of you may know in the Metro, at the Metropolitan Museum, because in 2003, he decided to make a life change, and he started moving away from collecting and has become a baritone. And I admire him for that, because it's very hard to break the addiction. Anyway, this was the first thing I bought by myself, and it's the uh, convent of Grotta Ferrata, which is to the southeast of Rome, very near Frascati, unattributed. When we speak, I'm interested that you say about John Gere not being so interested in attributions. It's just as well, because many of them never make it. This one has been called alternately 1810, 1820, 1780. Uh, it's hard to pin it down. There's some thought that it might be by Dunouy, who's much of his... Uh, holdings were burned in a fire in 1801, but there were a certain amount that were left, in which case it's 1790, something like that. This one, I was very surprised, was picked for this exhibition. I had, I originally had thought about doing many things to influence what would be the choice, but very clearly it wasn't a good idea. I was very surprised this was picked because it isn't really an oil sketch. It isn't Italy, it isn't, well, we're, we're in other parts of the world in this exhibition. This is an, a montage, which is of nine, nine little sketches made by probably Sarazin de Belmont, Mademoiselle 
Sarrazin de Belmont, you've seen a beautiful sketch of Taormina was just shown, uh, had been in Italy in 1826 to 1028 about, and she had to leave. She was a self-supporting lady, and she had to make some money to continue, and she was longing to get back to Italy, so she came to France. She was extremely enterprising, and she went for, in 1830, about to this valley of Argelès in, uh, in the Pyrenees, and made where there's a sort of a hut, if you can see in one of those. She slept in a shepherd's hut for three months and painted herself silly and then submitted to the Salon in Paris two huge montages, one with, I think it was 54, the other was 61, of things like this. And it went like a bomb. Everybody loved it. Great press. So she decided to make other ones, I think, and I think this is one of the later ones that will have been so sold. She had all kinds of original ideas. She promoted herself. And she uh, went into auctions. I mean, she made auctions of her work, and these things were very, very popular. As it happened, I found this in the mid-'80s at, at a little gallery, which became tremendously useful to me, called Fischer and Kiner, a tiny street off of the Rue du Bac. And it was in all sorts of pieces. The frame was in all sorts of pieces. There were little piles of paintings. And so we put it together. It has moved around a few times and has been put together again several times. But it it's shows what was the great interest in the 19th century of these picturesque rememberings of different types of uh, landscapes, different parts. This was, I would say, the first important oil sketch that I bought, and only after a very long time, because life had been moving on and I had not really been collecting that much because I could not. This one, at a certain point, came up, and they're the same gallery, Fisher and Keener, who were very close to Philip Connersby, very close to all the people. We speak of Hazlitt. They bought much of what they had from them. This is by Simon Denis, and it's a view of Tivoli at nighttime in an electric storm. When I bought it, it was rather yellow, and eventually it was cleaned, and it revealed this very bright atmosphere, and many people have said, well, how could at nighttime it be this bright? But since I have been living for some time now in Rome, this is exactly the way the light looks. And I think it's entirely possible that this he was painting out of doors, this one. A couple of uh, art dealers who have had a huge impact on the market are called Les Bertrands, and there's Bertrand Talabardon and Bertrand Gautier. And for years, they, they were always, they were very expensive. And then from time to time, they had to pay for something and they would become reasonable. <laughs> so um, one time I had been looking at this sketch, which is by Caruel Daligny, and it was just wildly expensive and I couldn't do it. And at some point they called up and said, I think it's okay, we, we found a price. And I wanted it very much. This is Oleveno, which is where in general, the Germans and the Danes were painting in Olevano Romano, which is also beyond Frascati. And this precise point is from going towards the, the Casa Balbi, which is the little house on the left of the tree. It was where the Germans really were staying there mostly. But I love this sketch because we know that Caruel Daligny, like so many of the artists, would go out sketching with Coho. And I knew I was never going to get a coho from this period, ever. I just could not do it. So I thought at least I can find some artists who were with him and try to make some sense of how they were affected by him. And this very clearly he was, partly in the construction of the, the uh, light planes behind, but particularly in placing a tree smack in the middle, which was something that nobody else would have done but coho at this time. 
Then came the financial crisis. We're, I mean, we keep moving ahead quite a lot. In 2008, uh, which was complicated for many art dealers, worse probably for real estate, but it was terrible for art dealers. And a little bit later, in 2009, early nine, there were, used to be something called the Salon du Collectionneur, which was a wonderful salon in Paris, because the things were not so expensive, and they were often unattributed, unknown, secondary, but you could make discoveries. I had been able to buy bronzes very well in this salon. And I ran into a stand, and I thought, what is this? Didn't know anything about Danish painting. There was a Dane there, or a half-Dane, who was half-American, somebody called Jimmy Bauerle. And Jimmy's father had been an American, and his mother had been Danish, and he had been growing, he grew up in Brooklyn. He had a pure Brooklyn accent that I had not heard in a really long time. <laughs> and he explained to me that when he was 15 or 16, his mother said, you should really make an effort to learn the language. I, you must go live with the cousins for the summer. And he went there, and very quickly he called home and said, I'm not coming back. This is my country. So he became very, very involved in, in all sorts of things. And I liked him for this because he'd taken a bit of time to find his calling. But he had become one of the bigger dealers of Danish painting. This is a painting by Kuhn, who is the second generation of Danish uh, masters after Eckersberg and Kopka, and these very great ones that also I was never going to be able to have. And I loved it because of the light. I loved it because it reminded me of my mother, who had always loved Capri, and this particular view. And this was the beginning of a huge amount of work with Jimmy, who would come often to Paris or to London, wherever we were, with great big Chinese portfolio-type things filled with all sorts of stuff. And he would, he would display what he had like an itinerant salesman. <laughs> and one would pick, and we, had, we found some wonderful things from him. This one is, again, I was a little surprised that it was in the show, but there you are. This is Stromboli, which happens to be in the Aeolian Islands. And for my late husband, I'm unfortunately died very, very prematurely of a cancer and 20 years ago. So for some time now, I have been with a person who loves the Aeolian Islands. And so when I saw this, one tries not to buy things because of anecdote. It's always a very great mistake, a very great mistake, but it happens. But I also thought it was amusing because I thought it was very clear he wasn't painting this in that little boat. There was no way. Um, <laughs> I do have an Aurora Borealis of Fergola, the Bourbon court painter in Capo di Monti, but he had a terrace. He could sit there and watch this. This one, no. But he surely made drawings, and it, it was an, it was an arresting image. But what I really liked about it was, among other things, it's always about the, the human side of things when you're buying. This belonged to someone who has helped this exhibition immeasurably, somebody called John Harvey Bergen, many of whose oil sketches and paintings have now been integrated into the collection of the Fondation Custodia. This one, I have another taste. This is the oil sketches are one thing, but I love finished paintings. I have a great taste for neoclassical type of paintings by Turpin de Crisset and such. This is a little painting that a lady dealer in Paris called Fabienne Fiacre sold to me by bullying me, which is hard to do, but she did it. And she said, you have everything, but you don't have French national pride. Of, uh, I, mean, I had perhaps for myself, but you don't have it for the oil sketches. This is a scene actually in Nîmes, in the arena of Nîmes, with a little historicized uh, draftsman in the right corner who's in Renaissance dress and two little figures up on the, 
on the, the bridge. And so it is by somebody who is a troubadour painter called uh, Fleury Richard, who's a Lyonnaise painter. I like the Lyonnaise school, so that was one. And then I have not spoken much about auctions because I don't actually buy very much at auction because I find myself incapable of doing it, either too emotional or not bright enough to realize what's going on with these auctioneers. It's not always so easy. This one, I was lucky because I have a very great friend who's called Heinrich Sieveking, who is a hamburger living in Munich, who is one of the world experts of German romantic, the time of Goethe, the drawings. And he called me one day and he said, you happen to be in Munich, go over the Villa Griesebach, which is a Berlin auction house, has a, a, just a showing of their best things. There's a marvelous sketch by Reinhold, who's an artist who died very young, of Sorrento, and you're going to love this. And I said, well, yes, but it was estimated hugely expensively. And I said, yes, but, you know, I can't do it. And he said, wait, I know. And this is where sometimes we are helped by our friends. There is no reserve, and everybody thinks it will go very high, so people won't be preparing for it. And I was able to get it, and that was a terrific help to me uh, to have friends who told you things like that. Here we go on to the pure oil sketches of the uh, Swiss artist who's called Fry. Fry was living in Rome and in Naples all his life because he married an Italian. And this is a case where dealers have found whole sources of things. The, this happens to be Francesca Antonacci and Damiano Lapicerella, who are a Roman Florentine couple who fight a great deal about their cities. Uh, <laughs> but they tend to agree on these things. And they are very aggressive in dealing with descendants of artists. And so they were able to, I was lucky because these came up before Tefaf, and they were shown in Tefaf, but they showed me these in January, so they were able to be bought. This one is maybe the hardest thing I ever had to buy because I missed it in 2013 uh, in a sale in Paris because I was at that time living in a little village on the Lake of Lugano, and there was no way to get there within, in, a, in a morning unless one had hired a private plane, which was obviously not what I was going to do. So I missed it. I bid up very, very high without seeing it. And then I thought, I'm crazy. Why? I haven't seen this thing. You should never buy anything you haven't seen. It went away. Immediately at Tefaf, again at Maastricht, I saw it in the hands of an, one of the rare art dealers I'm not so keen on. And it was at a huge price, so I let it go. And then time and again, it was like an open wound. I saw it <laughs> later at Luca Baroni, who's a very <laughs> fine dealer. Huge price. Every time it was doubling, tripling. And lastly, worst of all, Daniel Katz. Danny Katz, who was maybe one of the greatest dealers in the world in London. So I gave it up. I thought, that's it. You know, too bad for me. One day, by serendipitous chance, we happened to be in uh, London. And we ha I had to go and leave a note to excuse myself for having forgotten to go to a lunch. And we stopped on our way somewhere. And we ran into Danny Katz. And we were talking about this and that. And he was trying to convince it, an, a, a restaurant owner to start a restaurant in his own neighborhood, an Italian restaurant, because his own neighborhood is a wonderful neighborhood but doesn't have a good restaurant. <laughs> and he said to, he said, Alice, tell this man, you know everything, tell this man I can put million pound paintings on his walls. It will be an absolute success. And I said, well, he can do that. I said, but Danny, I don't know everything. I should have hired a private plane. I should have gone and got this picture. He said, I'll sell it to you at cost said, no way. Whatever is your cost, it's gone through four hands now. It, and I was astonished. It, his cost was actually not so bad. It was less than the original price at Maastricht, which made me think that these dealers among themselves are perhaps much more gentle. 
So that, I was, and we went to his place, he showed it to me again, and he said, I'll send it around tomorrow. I said, uh-uh. Off we went. <laughs> We're almost finished now. One of the things about collecting, which has always been for me a moral problem, is the element of egocentricity and possession. And do we deserve to have these things? Can we not share them? It's why I was really, really very happy to participate in this exhibition and very, very privileged. But this is a picture that's in the National Gallery. It's the great Bosch called Death and the Miser. And it's a, it's a cautionary tale. And so I've been thinking about this for years, and I'm getting old enough now that it has to be dealt with. I have given my collection to my only child, but equally assorted to all the archives is this should go to this museum, that should go to this museum, etc. This one is one that was owned by a great uh, collector of northern material and Swiss material called Absjorn Lund. And I know that Mary had liked this sketch. This is a sketch by the Norwegian artist Fernley of Carrara, which is an extremely rare motif of these things. They didn't usually pass by the high hills of the marble. You can see, if you look carefully, two tiny diminutive figures. I, I, for some reason, Absjorn Lund's will to give these things to various places has been somehow transformed, and it occurred to me that since Mary likes this, this should come to the National Gallery. Nice. And then this next one is a Camuccini. You already have one. This one is, will be shown. Uh, these are... Uh, I don't, actually. <laughs> spoken for, spoken for. This one, there's a whole series of Camuccinis that are coming up at Tefaf this year, again by the same source as the fries. But since we live in Rome, I was able to visit these things and pick what I wanted. And this was, this is a very large canvas. This I know Herr Leuten wanted very, very much, and he had a problem with it. So that will go there. But Jane will have to find something. I <laughs> <laughs> yes. thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, first of all, on behalf of the National Gallery of Art, I want to thank you for the Thomas Fernley. Elisa, uh, do we have some paperwork for, for Alice? God, wow, that's fantastic. So um, really exciting. But I also, um, I just thought it's, it's been so great to, to hear uh, the point of view of somebody who's out there uh, year after year, day after day, you know, shaking these things down with passion and knowledge and energy. And I just thought that would be um, super, super interesting. So thank you so much. That was fascinating. Um, and so now I have to do this very difficult job of um, impersonating Herr Leuten, who, uh, there's a picture I did, we just wanted you to see what he looks like. There is uh, myself and Janie and Herr, and we're working through the checklist. I did also want to say that Alice has actually been involved in this project from the very beginning, before I got involved, and I think before Janie. So, um, I mean, Alice is really part, part of this whole project, beyond a, a pure lender. But there is Herr. He was so sorry not to be able to come. He loves the gallery. He comes regularly, but he was taken very ill last week. He's feeling better. But he sent slides and a text. And so I'm going to read his text as if I were him and show you the slides that he sent from the Fondation Custodia, which is one of the most extraordinary places to look at art uh, in Paris. And if you have not been there, you must go the next time that you are visiting. Okay, so this is, I'm now in the voice of Herr. 
The photographs of the staircase and the vestibule of the Hotel Turgot give an impression of the display of the oil sketches in the house that Fritz Lucht and his wife, To Lucht Klever, bought in 1953 to present their collection and to assure the continuity of the Fondation Custodia, a place for study and contemplation, encounter and perception of beauty. The Fondation is funded by an endowment, according to the principle you all know in America, but which was innovative in culture and the arts in Europe around 1947. Since the death of the founders in 1969 and 70, the collection of the Fondation has been expanded by three successive directors with an accent on works on paper, drawings and prints, as well as artist letters of which there are around 58,000 from all periods and schools, from Albrecht Dürer, Michelangelo and Rembrandt to Gauguin, Mondrian and after. There were no oil sketches until Carlos van Hasselt, appointed director after Lucht died, bequeathed some 50 oil sketches to the Fondation in 2009 and five to the Fitzwilliam Museum, uh, where he had started his career in the 1950s. When I became director in 2010, they were stored in a cupboard in the depot, or the storage, and upon her retirement, my predecessor, Carlos's successor, spoke the words, see what you can do with them. I studied them closely, checked attributions, condition, and frames, and thought, there is life in them. I had started to love oil sketches at the time I was working at the Rijksmuseum from 1990 to 2010 and convinced my board that it made sense to expand the bequest. The artists involved are in many cases represented with letters, drawings, and sketchbooks, and the Fondation is focused on art on paper and an enormous amount of the sketches is on paper. I started to hunt for them in 2011, became friends with other collectors and dealers, uh, and frame makers, and now slowly we grow towards a representative ensemble. The artists are French, Scandinavian, German, Italian, Netherlandish, English, collected with an open eye for quality and condition and variety, trying to avoid the ob obvious ones. Rarity is important, challenging our view. I like sketches that are difficult to date because of their timelessness. Back to the display, more than 50 paintings were taken out of the hanging at the Fondation for the exhibition. The rooms are open to the public, but by appointment. The display upon entering is always changing. It is the place to give visitors an impression of the new acquisition. If you can make out that terracotta bust, he then describes that terracotta bust with the portrait of Coho, it's a bust of Camille Coho, the master of the genre. It was a gift to the Fondation by Jacques Fischer, who you've already heard about, a great connoisseur of oil sketches and a lot more, who closed his gallery five years ago and gave it to me in a plastic bag on one of the last days his shop was open with the words, you always looked at it with hungry eyes when you came down the stairs, and I never wanted to sell it, now it's yours. Coro and Jacques will remain friends at the Fondation Custodia forever. We have dozens of letters by Coro and addressed, and addressed to him, and one of the dossiers also contains his folded sleeping cap. Yes, there's a bit of a fetishization of Coro amongst us. Um, here are some recent acquisitions completely in line with the selection made for the exhibition, True to Nature. 
Johann Christian Clausen Dahl, View in the Forest near Dresden, part of a small group of such detailed studies of light on trees done in 1825 after his return from Italy when he was back at the academy where he taught next to Caspar David Friedrich. Ferdinand George Waldmuller, a very rare landscape study from the 1830s, also with a concentration on light in the landscape, unmistakably German and preparatory for a bigger and more finished painting with figures in it. Waldmuller was primarily a painter of portraits. John Constable, the most expensive acquisition so far. The view of the house the artist and his wife rented in the summers of 1821 and 22 in Hampstead Heath. Constable seems to show the view his wife Mary had from her, her window with the elder tree as the central motif. Constable wrote later about the flowers, that they were his favorites, but that they make him feel melancholy. The sketch was discovered three years ago after having been in an English-American private collection for a long time out of view for over 80 years and unpublished. Gulf of Naples. The Fondation is strong in sky studies. This one is part of a group of Denitis, friend of Degas and Kaibot. He did it in a short span of time, very atmospheric and direct. Immediately asked for the exhibition on the artist, which is uh, running now in Ferrara. They're doing a show there and they've asked to borrow this from the Custodia. This small dinitus is more typical for Italian skies and therefore a beautiful complement to the more monumental one. Manuel Villant, a hardly known German artist who traveled through Italy in the 1880s. On his CD, Bring the Family, from the late 1980s, the American singer-songwriter John Hyatt plays the song Lipstick Sunset with a crystal clear solo on the slide guitar by Rye Cooter. I heard it once. Life and Roof went off the concert building. Goosepumps still today, every time I play it, this is Lipstick Sunset. So this is the joy of Hare. He's an ardent rock and roll fan. And when you go to the Fondacion, Fondacion Custodia and have dinner in his foyer, um, inevitably he'll choose a very special CD and crank it up really loud, and Alvaro and Regina and Hare will be dancing. Um, he's just, um, he's a force of nature. Uh, okay, back to the pictures. Edward Pop, Rooftops in Naples, yeah, 1845. See, Alice's competitive juices are flowing when she sees Herr having found this. Well, the thing about Herr Leuten is that he's known to all of the dealers, of course, in Paris and across Europe. And so when they come across an extraordinary sketch, they often will go first to him. And uh, he's such a gifted um, fundraiser, and he does have an acquisitions fund, so he's often able to, to make it happen. Um, so there is wonderful, I think, very constructive jealousy on the part of his peers out in the field. May I just interrupt yes, for you a may. very, very short anecdote? We would be going to Tefaf in Maastricht and always be the first people off the block, whether it was 11 or 12 o'clock, always go to the places which would have oil sketches, and one year it was all sold. We thought, what has happened? And then we realized Herr Leuten was on the vetting committee, and he had seen it all. Then one year we got used to this and started having diversionary tactics to find things. There were things, and it was because his wife had just had a baby the day before. <laughs> it's a, it's a most lovely person. Yeah. We all are crazy about it. It's a lovely person. It is a fierce field, as you can tell. <laughs> So this picture, Herr loves, uh, because he says you think of Edward Hopper. He was not born yet, of course. 
This painting, a poor man's Thomas Jones, unsaleable in the 1950s and unaffordable now. Uh, it was bought in, in just this last year, 2019. I chose it for the New Year's card of the Fondation for 2020 with a poem by Rudyard Kipling. I have known shadow, I have known sun, and now I know these two are one. Hein Burgers, a Dutch painter who came, and this is the last, to study in Paris in the 1870s. This is the view from his studio, which he painted for his niece in Holland to show her what he saw when he looked outside. How informal can art be, and how intriguing? Such oil sketches, as well as all the ones in the exhibition, contain no anecdotes, very little details refer to contemporary history. Few do refer to everyday life. They stand out of time. They are made, one tends to assume, in contemplation in front of the motif, where the painter became first of all an eye that registered and observed with great intensity, and a hand with a brush, fingers, the inside of a thumb to note down. Collectors and museum curators are now beginning to play a role to also chart and study what artists did while in nature, alone, with two, or in a little group, because over time, taste has developed for the unfinished, for, uh, for the study. And among us, there are more and more who are not solely drawn to the coryphase of art history, the great masters, but who also explore the contribution of artists with smaller names or forgotten ones. It is an incredibly rewarding journey so far, and there is yet a lot to discover. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast. Thank you.